to remain please do so either way take your bibles and turn to james chapter 2 thank you all for helping us to sing to the lord this morning we appreciate you guys and the gifts that you use to lead us and uh, if you if there are children who are going to go practice then if you would dismiss them at this time and Deborah and others will be out back there to collect them and take those back, uh, take them back, and then they'll bring them back or to the nursery. James chapter 2, we're going to begin at verse 8 as we uh, began chapter 2 last week. We'll pick up at verse 8 and read down through verse 13. This is God's word for us this morning, and here's what God says. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You may be seated. Father, there is no word like your word. So we're grateful to have the gift of your word. We're grateful that it's not an old book that is dusty and dead. We're grateful that it is living and active, that it is powerful, that it certainly informs us, but it does more than provide information. It is the means by which we commune with you and is the means by which your spirit transforms us. So help us as we continue our time of worship this morning. May we worship you now in and through and under your word. Change us and thereby thereby be glorified. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. After this morning, we will jump out of James for the next three weeks, the rest of the month, Lord willing, and we'll look at some themes out of the early chapters of the Gospel of Luke that pertain to Christmas. But I thought this, this morning we would need to spend one more day in James to kind of get us to a good breaking off point that we will resume, Lord willing, in January. For last week, we began talking about the matter of partiality. And really, verses 8 through 13 are a continuation of that discussion. He began last week in verse 1. I would just direct your eyes to verse 1 to kind of orient us as to what are we talking about. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. James began this 
unit by forbidding partiality. Partiality is the failure to treat people as equally made in the image of God. No, partiality uh, evilly re- uh, judges and rejects people uh, on the basis of external appearance or other worldly standards. For while there is a right standard of judgment, for instance, those who show partiality are being judged in this passage. A wrong standard of judgment is to judge someone simply upon what they look like or what our culture says is all this or all that. James explains last week, explained to us last week in the verses we considered last week, um, by using the, an illustration in verses 2 through 4 of uh, if, when, when uh, two people would come into to the worship, to the assembly, uh, if one guy uh, particularly looks uh, wealthy because of his dress and attire, we would make a big fuss over him. We would uh, show grand hospitality to them. We would put them in the place of special uh, honor. And yet if a guy came in who arguably is poor, kind of shabbily dressed, uh, we would treat that person with disdain or contempt. James says, now that's what I'm talking about. That's the kind of judgment on external appearance that, that is classified as partiality. He goes on in the verses that we considered last week that says when we, when we show partiality to a rich person over uh, above a poor person, uh, we actually um, are, are dishonoring those whom the Lord honors, and we are actually honoring those who dishonor the Lord. Now, James adds to that conversation this morning, builds upon that, and he clarifies and further explains the matter, matters pertaining to partiality. And what James seeks to do in these added verses on partiality this morning, 8 through 13, is he points out some issues about partiality as it relates to God's law. Two points I want us to make this morning, each about partiality, but each about a different description that he gives to us in reference to God's law. For instance, in 8 through 11, it's interesting how he orients this matter of partiality around the law by describing the law there in verse 8 as the royal law, the law of our king. And then in verses 12 through 13, it's interesting how he orients us to understand partiality by relating it to the law as he describes it there in verse 12 as the law of liberty, the law that liberates us. So let's look at those one at a time. First of all, verses 8 through 11, partiality and the royal law. Um, James has clearly unequivocally rejected uh, any notion of partiality. That is, judging somebody on external factors or other worldly uh, criteria. Uh, 
God's law speaks to this matter, uh, and, and he inserts that, and he says partiality is actually unlawful. To show partiality is to actually live lawlessly. You see, uh, in our standing against partiality, we stand with what the law itself teaches us. And he quotes here in verse 8 something out of the book of Leviticus. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says, so, so if, you, if you really fulfill this royal law according to the Scripture, and then he quotes Leviticus, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Now, what I want you to see is how he juxtaposes this notion of if you, if you do what the law says, verse 8, you're doing well. If you ignore or disobey what the law says, well, let's see how that plays out in verse 9. Um, but uh, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So if you obey the law, you're doing well. If you disregard, disobey the law, you are committing sin and regarded as a transgressor, which probably in that context means that you are regarded as someone who is uh, condemned as lawless. I hope that impresses upon you and I that uh, we might be tempted to think uh, partiality is just kind of a minor thing, just no big deal. Um, but he, he, he makes it weighty and significant. It says that to, to show favoritism on the basis of how someone looks uh, is to actually be lawless, unlawful, and to be indicted and condemned as someone who is lawless. And so, so partiality or favoritism is, is no small matter. To, to, to practice those things is to reject the law. And so he roots that in Leviticus I was having trouble finding it in my notes. Leviticus 19, 18. I know last week I inverted the, the passage in Leviticus. Of course, anytime I quote Leviticus, I get kind of sideways and, and, and ex experience vertigo anyway. But you shall, love your, the, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's an, that's an old law. It's a precious law. It's a still binding law. And just as a sidebar, when it says there, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, there's only one command there, not two. I hear this talked about in our culture today that in a way that really is not consistent with what is plainly stated here. Some people make this out to say there's actually two laws here. You're to love yourself and you're to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, technically, loving yourself is a given here. It's not a command. In other words, if, if you will just 
pay enough care and attention to your In this law. It's, it's not commanding us to uh, love ourselves. It's working under the assumption that we already do that. We got that down. No one has to walk a toddler through the steps of, now, this is how you need to love. No, now it's quite possible since we're fallen creatures, uh, we love ourselves uh, wrongly. We, uh, we lack the wisdom uh, that, we, that we need to, to fully understand how to, in a healthy way, love ourselves. But we pretty much have a handle on that one already. Um, but what he's saying is that, so love your neighbor, pay, his, pay, pay the same kind of attention and care for your neighbor as you normally just do for your own self. And what he's saying there is that when you fail to love your neighbor as yourself, when you fail to love this neighbor on par with that neighbor, then you are practicing uh, lawlessness because you are showing partiality. Now, on what basis would you choose to love that neighbor and not that neighbor? Well, on the basis of partiality. Why? Because... Well, that neighbor, that neighbor's got it. Beautiful people. That neighbor, loser. I'm not going to love that neighbor. That neighbor's a loser. Really what we're saying is that neighbor can do nothing for me. Now, this neighbor, to be chummy with this neighbor, my See, see, on what basis are we practicing partiality, but on the basis of selfishness? What's in it for me? And if there's nothing in it for me, I don't like you. That's lawlessness. That's unlawful. Um, we are to love our neighbor. If he or she is our neighbor, we are to love our neighbor, period. Now, using the illustration from last week about how we would show disdain toward a poor person uh, and, and, and elevate the status of a rich person, I, I, I think by pulling Leviticus into this, it's a reminder that, that that illustration he gave last week is just one possible scenario of how you and I would treat people differently on the basis of worldly standards or external appearance. I, I think, ironically, in our own culture today, Day, we could be we could be guilty of of that not being the only scenario that that was we with that um, we would flip it on its head we'd be tempted to flip it on its head and say well okay what what James tells us is that we should be nice to poor people we should love them but we should um, I don't know what do you think we should do with rich people I know we could tax them and gouge their eyes out yeah oh yeah do you, do you do you, do you see how that, that's a violent, if it's, what do you do with a, what do you, what do you do if you live next door to a rich guy? Do, do you, do, do you despise them? Do you loathe them? Do you envy them? Do you pray th for their downfall? We, 
It is, it is no virtue to hate or rail against the rich. We have a whole political system that that seems to like be the grandstand of what it attempts to do. And that's a violation of neighbor love. If your neighbor is poor, love them. If your neighbor is rich, love them. See, to fail to do so would be to judge them by worldly or external standards. Now, how you would figure out ways to express love to a rich neighbor as opposed to a poor neighbor or vice versa. In other words, treating them as equally made in the image of God does not mean that you would treat them the same in every way. Equality and sameness are not necessarily the same categories. We would need to differentiate things. And yet, and yet, devising, uh, hatching a, a strategy to love your neighbor well is a biblical strategy, whether they're on this side of the social, social economic strata or that side of the social economic strata. And in, in fact, to be a lawless, condemned transgressor of the law, uh, it would be a person who would, uh, who would uh, see people through any sort of, like, social class hierarchy. Yes, we see them as that, but, but that's not how we're going to decide if we like them or not. Or to apply that to, if you, if you grew up in St. Louis, you know this, but don't hate somebody just because of what high school they went to. Hey, Francis Howe finally won the state championship. How about that? So, yeah. Um, He says by describing this law in Leviticus as the loyal, as the, as the royal law, what he's saying is that when you and I uh, determine whether or not we will love our neighbor based upon external standards or social class criteria, then you and I are running our lives counter to the way of Jesus. Say, where does it talk about the way of Jesus here in this passage? Well, I would suggest to you that's the unique description that James gives when he quotes something from Leviticus, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and he calls that not simply the law, of course, that would be true, but he calls that the royal law. I would suggest that what James is reflecting is an understanding that, um, uh, that we are to obey the law, the Mosaic code, but inside that Mosaic code is the eternal law of God, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, now that he's arrived, who is our king. Our king is not Moses, never was our king, but our king is Jesus, and we come to look at the old covenant law through the filter of Jesus. We obey the law of God as it is classified, as it is brought to fulfillment, as it is even expanded by our Lord Jesus Christ. So while we are no longer in the old covenant, that doesn't mean we rip our Bibles out and ignore the rich treasure of revelation given to us in the Old Testament scriptures. 
For our Lord himself did not rip his Old Testament out of the Scriptures. That would be the only Bible we had if he did that. But, uh, but, but we now come to view our understanding of, of what to practice and how to live in regard to the law through the filter of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we certainly know that when it comes to this particular law of love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus elevates that to a high classification. Certainly that's a part of the royal law uh, transmitted to us by King Jesus. For when he was asked, what is the greatest law? He said, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He goes on to say, and, and, and you know what? You just worry about those things. You, you have collapsed and summarized the whole standard of the, of the law it, itself. And so see where he's gone here. He's gone from partiality is bad to partiality is unlawful. It is living lawlessly. It is living in defiance of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's another thing he says about the law. And, and, and oh, it, it, he's, he, he illustrates the, the importance of lawfulness and and uh, in the verses that follow, 10 and 11, by, by illustrating that, okay, now you've heard it said don't commit adultery, and you've heard it said don't commit murder, uh, and um, just working off of those two assumptions, he says, well, what if, I, what if I just split the difference? What if I just like, okay, I'm not going to do both of them, but what if I just decide, oh, look, I won't kill you, but I'm going to go commit adultery or vice versa. Well, James says, like, well, if you, if you break one aspect of the law, you're not a nine-tenths lawbreaker. You're not a four-fifths lawbreaker. You're just a lawbreaker. To break one aspect of the law. So you see that you, they're like, so what if I just practice a little bit of partial, impartial, uh, partiality every now and again? then you're a lawbreaker. You're guilty of having broken the whole law. That's how the law of God is so helpful to us in defining what is right and wrong. Now, if we were living in the 1950s, um, culturally, um, we would have said, uh, sexual immorality is bad. You shouldn't do sexual immorality. But if we were living in the 1950s, we would say, well, what about uh, racism or partiality? Yeah, they got a point there. It was, social, it was more socially acceptable to put into place even civil laws that, that would promote this issue of partiality and, and racism or ethnic distinctions, worldly things. And, and yet we were a little bit more fastidious about sexual purity What's so interesting is that now our culture today has flipped on the issue. The only thing that will get you in trouble is partiality. But sexual deviance, that ain't no big deal. I mean, how do we think about that? In the 1950s, we'd gotten it wrong in this end, and in the 1990s and beyond, we get it wrong in this end. What, what do we do? Just, is that just the way cultures fly and, and uh, flip like that? Well, that's why the eternal law of God should be so precious to us. Every time we go to decipher what is right and wrong, we would do that not on the whims of cultural acceptability. We wouldn't look around our culture and say, I don't know, what do you all think? 
We would look to the word of God and we would determine what the law of God says. And as it turns out, the law of God says sexual deviance and partiality are wrong. And to violate either is to be guilty of the whole category of lawlessness, is, is to be a condemned transgressor. But I got to move on. Verses 12 and 13 add to this. Uh, so, 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 in, in, in light of this notion of uh, to practice partiality is to be actually lawless and to be condemned as unlawful, um, no, one, no one wants to be put in the category, no, no one who would name the name of Jesus at least, as classified as a lawbreaker to the royal law, you would think. So building upon that, he, he adds to that in verse 13. So speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. Literally, James is, is, is admonishing us, knowing what we know about King Jesus and the law he gives to us, i.e., for instance, love your neighbor as yourself. Then if you're flirting with the notion of playing favorites and being partial because of, this, because of how someone looks or because of otherworldly standards, you better think twice. Because you will be held account before the bar of God's judgment for the practice of such lawlessness and unlawfulness known as partiality. So you better speak and you better act in a way that your consistent speaking and acting is, is done in a particular way, in which way, in this case, in a way that shows no partiality. Your neighbor is just your neighbor. That neighbor and that neighbor, the way we act and the way we speak should show consistently that we love them and we love them. They are each made in the image of God and therefore there is no distinction on whether or not we should love them. For if we start making distinctions, particularly upon the basis of external appearance and or other worldly standards, what I would just, also I would just add to that for non-moral reasons, then understand that we will give an account. We will stand under judgment ourselves. So if you're sitting here thinking, you know, I'm still trying to decide if I if I going to, you know, be impartial or not. Okay, well, as you sort that out, James says, let me just throw this into the factor. If you're deciding whether or not you want to practice partiality or not, understand this. You will answer to Jesus. And just a heads up. This is not going to be a pop quiz. Jesus wants you to understand what, what's in play here. Uh, and, and so, so speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty for judgment, going on to verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. So you, you know how this plays itself out. If you're just trying to decide today, I don't know if I want to be merciful to my neighbor or not. In fact, I probably don't think so. I don't like the way they look. 
Okay. Okay. Then no mercy is shown to those who show no mercy. I mean, there's no ambiguity here with that. That, 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 that how we hear that, we, if, if, if you're the kind of Christian who hears that and says, oh, I've prayed to receive Jesus, uh, no judgment will ever come to me, th- then you don't really understand the Scriptures. To, to look at a, a clear warning from Scripture and dismiss that because when you were 12, you prayed a prayer... It's a horrible notion of what salvation consists of. In fact, what I would add to that is he actually, when he, when he inserts in here this other aspect of the law in verse 12, so speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. I think here in this case, now back in chapter 1, he talked about the, the law of freedom, and now here in chapter 2, he's talking about the law of liberty. I, I think in chapter 1, he's referring to the law that defines what freedom looks like. Here in chapter 2, he's talking about the law to which we have now been enabled are freed to obey. In other words, do you you see how this stockpiles judgment upon ourselves? If we claim that we belong to Jesus, then what that means is that Jesus has moved into our hearts and lives. He's done far more than pardon us, although I would never want to be uh, denigrating or dismissive of that. But when Jesus pardons us, he brings a whole boatload of blessings into this salvation thing. And one of those blessings is he doesn't simply pardon us um, for, uh, to cleanse us from the penalty and guilt of our sins, but he also empowers us with the presence of his spirit that now the way we look at the law and the way that we desire to even be lawful has changed. We don't receive salvation so that we have some sort of like fire insurance so that we can continue to live lawless lives disregarding the law of God because somehow we've prayed a prayer and belong to Jesus and yet we have no love for Jesus or love to obey his commands. That's just a really bad understanding of salvation. No, If you and I belong to Jesus, then we should rejoice in the full pardon that we've received. But is there any desire in you to want to actually do what Jesus tells you to do? For Jesus imparts new life into our hearts. He says back in chapter 1, verse 21, that his word is implanted in us, which is able to save us. And that, that implanted word is the spirit of the word that's inside of us, that when we hear the word, the spirit says, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I, I love that. I want to do that. Let's do that. And so to have a disregard for the law of God when through the gospel, the the law is now something that we've been empowered and enabled to do, how much severe judgment would await us? Or in other words, someone who is a notorious, consistent practitioner of partiality is not a follower of Jesus. You say, well, I joined a church when I was 18. 
Well, that's fine. I'm not opposed to you joining the church. I'm talking about the, are you in right relationship with Jesus and does that right relationship to Jesus begin to seep out in that you are now alert to the warnings that Jesus gives to us. You see, when, when, when the scriptures give us uh, impending uh, warnings of impending judgment, it's so interesting how that falls on us. For if you are a follower of Jesus... When you encounter, like James is hitting us with right here, a warning about future judgment, if you are a follower of Jesus, you will hear that much differently than if you are not a follower of Jesus, whether you got baptized, whether you prayed a prayer, or whether you joined a church. A Christian who hears the warnings in Scripture becomes sober and alert to the Bible's warnings. He heeds them. Lord, I don't want to stand before you and be judged by you. I want to hear your words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. So thank you for warning me that if I slough off and become lazy in the practice of partiality, you will hold me account. And I don't want to answer to you for that. I want to obey you right here and right now, for I know that I will stand. Now, but someone who thinks themselves to be a Christian, who's probably not, maybe just someone who's a false Christian, when you hear warnings like this, then you're just like, whatever. I mean, it's no big deal. I mean, I I know Jesus. I'm, I'm good with the man upstairs. And, and so you dismiss the Bible's warnings. Don't dismiss the Bible's warnings. That shows a disdain and a lack of faith in the Scriptures. The God who loves you and I, who sent his Son to rescue us, is the God who now comes and moves inside of us not so that we could slough off being lawful people, but so that for the very first time in reality, we could become lawful people. And so to be lawless when we now claim to have the ability to be lawful, is to not acknowledge the seriousness of the reality that we will each stand before the Lord to give an account for our lives. I say that not to scare the children. I, I say that so that this week, when we are thinking about the law, and we were thinking about even what the law says in this context about partiality and the practice of, of partiality, that we would be sobered to realize I cannot judge somebody based upon what they wear or how they look. Stop it. For I will give an account to Jesus for such uh, thoughts and words and actions. Now that's sobering, and yet James, praise God, he, he ends not on such a Debbie Downer note. Sorry if your name is Debbie. But, um, so I've got to come up with a better one. But he concludes this section with, a reminder that mercy triumphs over judgment. 
Now, he's done that in the context of no mercy, no quarter will be given. No mercy will be given to those who do not show mercy. And then he, I think he, he skips, if you would, and, and goes to this last statement to wrap up this section. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In so doing, I would suggest to you that James is describing something so precious about the salvation that comes to any of us in the Lord Jesus Christ. For apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, the only real conversation about reality is the certainty of future judgment resulting in our eternal condemnation. Now, God could have remained holy and just if he had just left the conversation there. If Adam and Eve, when they fell and rebelled against God in the garden, if God just judged them and placed them outside the garden and uh, arranged their eventual death, then he would have been just because he simply did what he promised. The angels, when they rebelled against God, there's no indication in Scripture that any of the angels are given any sort of second chance kind of thing. They're just instantly judged for their rebellion. And yet for humanity, God has seen fit to display something of His glory by when humanity rebelled against God, that God has enacted a, a, a path of rescue. And, and, and that path of rescue is found in Jesus who arrives and in his arrival, he begins to set his face on a life that fulfills all righteousness. And there at the cross, Jesus accomplishes our salvation. The salvation for any and all who would even this morning turn from ourselves and turn to Jesus. Jesus on the cross does not provide us salvation by circumventing uh, judgment, but he provides us salvation by absorbing judgment in his body upon himself. And he does that by taking your sin and my sin and bearing up under the just judgment of our sin. The judgment that you deserve back at me, the judgment that I deserve, to which I will not be on my own able to stand before God and give account for. I will be crushed under my judgment. But Jesus has taken that judgment. He hasn't ignored it, but he has absorbed it in himself on the cross for us and our salvation. And that act of absorbing judgment as our substitute is nothing less than an act of mercy. And I think what James is saying here is that, and those who understand that, that you're not going to get the judgment you deserve because you're going to get the mercy that you don't deserve. But Jesus earned it for you and gifts it to you. If you understand that you are a recipient of mercy, then when it comes to something like partiality, recipients of mercy become reflectors of mercy. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Thank you for the mercy that he has shown to us through the judgment that he has absorbed for us. So help us now to leave out of here not only grateful and worshipful for what Jesus has done, but may our worship overflow in obedience to Jesus. May we never look upon people by external appearance. May the last thing that would be said of us is that we are partial. But may we honor you because you have shown us much mercy. May we be also displayers of much mercy. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.